modern day evolutionists. They are more concerned about global warming than they are with God's coming global meltdown and judgment. And in our day, more and more people attribute this world that we're walking on to evolution and not to the creative hand of God. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in the eighth chapter of the Revelation, and in the first few verses, we're introduced to a number of angels who will be performing various tasks in heaven during the time of the Great Tribulation. As we pick up in verse 3, we're given information about some of the so-called furniture that will be present in the heavenly temple where Jesus resides. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he draws a parallel between this heavenly temple and the plans God gave Moses for the first tabernacle and subsequent earthly temples. Now, Moses records for us in the Torah a very detailed description of the tabernacle that later becomes the temple. When Moses came down from that mountain, as Cecil B. DeMille uh, placed him with those Ten Commandments in each arm, he also had a set of blueprints. And he didn't show that, but God gave him some specific blueprints of a temple in heaven. So Moses couldn't build a a tabernacle however he wanted to build it. God had specified specifically how it should be built. And we've already begun to see some of the temple furniture. We looked at the brazen altar earlier in Revelation. That was the altar that the priests would sacrifice um, an animal on because they couldn't just approach God flippantly because we're sinful. And since the life is in the blood and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness, atonement needed to be made. Someone asked me on the Bible line about atonement during the millennial reign. Yes, there will be atonement. Now, we know Moses referred to the fact that the blood of animals atoned for sin. Well, we know that they can't take away sin, but nonetheless, they atoned for sin in the sense that they were a picture. And we're going to study later on a future temple beyond the tribulation temple that will be constructed during the millennial reign of Messiah. The prophet Ezekiel writes about it. And just as we practice the Lord's Supper as a memorial looking back, even so, we will be in the temple as a forever reminder of what Jesus did, especially for those who will be saved during the millennial reign. We'll come to that, so I'm getting ahead of myself. But there's all this temple furniture. Here's a picture of the golden altar. How do we know it looks like that? Because God tells us exactly what it looks like. He gives us a detailed description of what it would look like. And if you remember from the Christmas story, John the Baptist's father was at this very altar that sat right in front of the veil that brought you into the Holy of Holies. And there he is ministering. They took the coals from the brazen altar where the blood had been spilt to affirm that you couldn't come just any way you chose. You came on the basis of blood, prefiguring the blood of Jesus who would atone and take away and propitiate the sins of the world. And they mixed incense with it. And as they did it, they prayed to God and the incense rising up into heaven was a picture of our prayer coming to God as a sweet aroma. 
Now, look at Revelation 5 and verse 8, or just listen to it. If you remember, we studied one of these altars. The 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So when we read here in our text this morning about incense arising up to God, it's defined for us as the prayers of the saints. These golden bowls represent our prayers. You might want to put next to verse 3, Psalm 141, verse 2. Let me read it to you. King David said in that psalm, May my prayer be counted as incense before you. That's the picture here in verse 3. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. Now again, we saw this golden altar in chapter 5 along with the brazen altar in chapter 6. And these pieces of furniture are actually in heaven this morning. Do you know that there is a temple in heaven that someday, as believers in Jesus Christ, we're going to fix our eyes upon that? You say, how do you know it? Because the Revelation is going to write about it, and the book of Hebrews mentions it. And the book of Hebrews is quoting the book of Exodus. Let me read Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5. Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, and then notice the change in typeset telling you this is an Old Testament quotation, and God said, see that you make all things according to the pattern which, you, which was shown you on the mountain. So Moses was given a pattern up on that mountain when he went up there for all those days. And the word pattern is the word tupos. And so that's an important word in your Christian vocabulary. It's translated pattern or type, depending on your English Bible. And so you will hear a pastor speak of a type. A type is an Old Testament picture of a coming reality. And there are many types in the Old Testament. Abraham up on top of Mount Moriah, taking Isaac, his uniquely begotten son, and getting ready to offer him as a sacrifice was a type of the Lord Jesus. The ark is one boat with three floors with one door, a picture of our triune God. And the only way to come into a relationship through the triune God is through the one door. And so you have all these Old Testament pictures of a future reality. Jesus said the scriptures referring to the Old Testament speak of me, and he meant exactly that. And so if you remember the book of Hebrews, you had these Jewish people who become believers in Jesus. They don't give up their Jewishness any more than you give up your ethnicity when you believe on the Lord Jesus. A Jew is a descendant of Abraham. And so their Jewishness was still there, but they were believers in Jesus. But when they believed in Jesus, because the majority did not, he came to his own, his own received him not, but as many as received him, he gave the right to be called children of God. To be a Jewish Christian was to invite persecution in your life. You were ostracized, you were rejected. Some of the Jewish Christians I led to the Lord at Duke University were disowned by their families. And that still happens today. And so some of the Jewish believers thought, well, we'll just go back and we'll identify with our Jewish brethren and we'll participate in the temple worship. 
Because after all, they prefigure Christ. And the writer of the Hebrews says, no, that temple was just a copy of a heavenly reality. And you are working off of a copy when you need to be dealing with what's real. You're dealing with a set of priests who are of a different lineage than the one true high priest who works in a real temple in heaven. And so you're dealing with shadows and copies when you need to be dealing with reality. When we come to Revelation 11, we're told, then the temple of God, literally, was opened in heaven, and the ark of His covenant was seen in His temple. There was a movie years ago about, I think, trying to discover some ark somewhere. I can tell you where the ark is. It's right in heaven. There is an ark literally in heaven. Now, there's some debate whether there's one under the temple mount in Israel today, But I can tell you where the real ark is, and it is in heaven, and we'll study that a little bit later on. So it's this temple that John sees. Again in verse 3, another angel came and stood at the altar, the brazen altar where the animals were sacrificed, holding a golden censer, this bowl, and much incense was given to him so that he might add to it the prayers of the saints on the golden altar. So he took the coals that had been covered with blood, and he put him in his censer, and he added the incense to it. And again, it was a picture of the prayers of the saints ascending into heaven. So here's this eighth angel. There are seven angels holding a trumpet and another angel. By the way, some think that this angel is Jesus. It's not, and I'll tell you why in just a second. This is a real angel. But he takes this bowl, and he adds to it the incense, and you see the prayers of the saints ascending to God. Now, by the way, this is a favored verse of Roman Catholic expositors, and they say that this is a proof, and they make it a proof text out of its context, but it's because of the way they approach the revelation And if you weren't here for the first sermon, you might want to go back and listen to that because we saw there were three major approaches to the Revelation. Some say it was all fulfilled before 70 A.D. You really have to spiritualize the book of Revelation to come to that conclusion. Some say it is being fulfilled in our day. Luther thought that the Pope who was alive in his day was the literal Antichrist and that Jesus was going to come back at any moment. He was a little mixed up in his eschatology. Uh, But most, historically, the early church fathers, the late church fathers, until Origen comes along, and Origen doesn't want to talk about a king who's going to literally rule on the earth, because that would defy Caesar, and that would cost him his head. So he spiritualized the revelation. Augustine bought into that. The Roman Catholic Church adopted it. Calvin and Luther put a different spin on it and said, no, it's all history for the most part, with the exception of the second coming in the 19th chapter, but the church has replaced Israel, and and so they have to really butcher the passage. The problem that we saw with that is that every single prophecy for the first coming without exception was literally fulfilled. And for us to think that God is going to fulfill the prophecies for the second coming differently is to apply a warped hermeneutic or principle for interpreting the Scripture. But Roman Catholics use this as a proof text that uh, he might add to it the prayers of the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And they say there are these saints in heaven that we are to pray to. Well, sainthood in Catholicism is based on two things, merit 
and miracles. You had to have done at least one credible miracle and merit. And so the Pope recently declared Mother Teresa, voted on by the Cardinal of College of Cardinals, to be a saint. Sainthood in the New Testament is not based on merit or miracles. It's based on faith in Jesus Christ. And the moment you believe, you are called a saint. Listen, we don't have to pray to Mary. We don't have to pray to St. Christopher for safety on the road or St. Anthony if we've lost something. There is one mediator between God and man, that is Christ Jesus. We go directly to God. Now, there was one popular Protestant expositor who wrote a best-selling book in the last decade on heaven. Of course, he takes a very loose view of the revelation. And so because of that, a lot of the passages that deal with the future, he's kind of spiritualized and rewritten. And in my view, given the evangelical church, a distorted view of heaven. He takes passages that deal with the millennial thousand-year reign of Christ, and he says that's the future earth, that God's not going to burn this earth with fire. He's just going to fix it up. No, friend, he's not going to fix it up. He's going to literally obliterate it and create a new heaven and a new earth. But he takes the position that these are saints in heaven, since this has all been fulfilled before 70 AD, who are praying for us on earth. The saints in heaven are not praying for us on earth. Remember, this is a futuristic scene. This has not even yet happened. This is out in the future when the church has been raptured and we've been caught up in heaven. We will witness this very thing. These are born-again believers, church saints, tribulation saints, who are praying for God's kingdom to come. I mean, how many of you have prayed the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer, whatever you want to call it, doesn't matter to me. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That has not yet happened, but it is going to happen. Christ's will, God's will on earth is going to be literally fulfilled when he comes again and he sits on David's throne. And this certainly is not Christ, and we know that definitively, though I heard a sermon once, how this angel is Jesus, and by his blood he takes our prayers to the Father. It was rather an entertaining sermon, but it has nothing to do with what God says here. I saw another angel. Remember, there are two words in Greek for another. There's the word heteros, and there's the word alos. We have one word in English. There are two words in Greek. The word heteros, we get our word heterosexual, referring to a different sex, or hetero, heteroorthodoxy, referring to a different type of teaching. There's heteros, another of a different kind, and then there's alos, another of the exact same kind. Jesus, for instance, said, I'm going to send another helper, referring to the Spirit. He's going to be just like me. And that's why he said, I will come to you. If I ask you for a heteros biblios, another book, you could give me any book you wanted, a book on fishing, a book on hunting, a book on geography. But if I ask you for an alos biblios, you'd have to give me another book just like this. You would have to give me another Bible. This is an alos angel. This is another angel, just like the other seven that have just been mentioned in the prior verse. This is not Jesus. This is a real, literal, actual angel. And so here are the saints in heaven. They've been crying out. We've studied all already. How long, O oh Lord, holy and true, will you keep from judging the world? And God is going to take their prayers 
And like incense rising up into heaven, God gives us a physical expression of their prayers so that we can see the cause-effect result. They are praying for God's righteous judgment on the earth. Some people say, that's not a Christ-like thing to do. Just read the imprecatory Psalms where the psalmist calls God's judgment down on the lost. Listen, there is a righteous judgment that the believer should affirm. And these saints in heaven know that there are these earth dwellers, not people who just physically live on the earth, but people who are committed to the earth, who are slaughtering God's people. And they're asking, how long, oh Lord, will you allow this to happen? Sometimes I look at the evil in our world and the widespread immorality and murder and wickedness. And like John, I just say, even so come, Lord Jesus. Even so come. We're praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. The angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it down to the earth. Verse 5, and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Now, don't miss the connection between the throne and the altar. God is a sovereign God, and He can do whatever He chooses to do, but very often He works in response to the prayer of God's people. And so this censer is filled with the fire of the altar there in the heavenly temple, and it's thrown down to the earth as a picture of the judgment to come. And there followed peals of thunder, lightning, and an earthquake. We saw those same sounds and pictures in Revelation 4 and verse 5. It's an ominous feeling of what is happening because God is getting ready to announce a new phase, and with it comes an earthquake. And earthquakes in the Bible are not indiscriminate. There are fallen earthquakes, but then there are God-ordained earthquakes. And if you want to do a study on earthquakes in the Bible, it's fascinating to see the relationship very often between an earthquake and when God has done something or is getting ready to do something. Now, that brings us into the seven trumpets. I know you're waiting. When's he going to get into the outline? I'm glad you're listening. We're going to go now to the first trumpet. The first trumpet is the brewing storm. The first trumpet is the brewing storm. We read now in verse 6, And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. Now, if you remember from last week, I gave you this chart. And I showed you that from the book of Daniel, we get the big schematic of the seven-year tribulation period. We often call it the 70th week of Daniel, that last seven years in human history. Jesus gives us a lot of the details to that schematic when he's up there on the Mount of Olivet and four of his disciples ask about his return to heaven. And the book of Revelation gives us a lot of the fine details. So we were not surprised to see that false Christ mimicked the white horse rider, that the wars to come that Jesus spoke of pictured the red horse, famine the black horse, death the pale horse, martyrs uh, that he spoke of during the tribulation, the martyrs under the altar, worldwide chaos and the sixth seal and so on, all the way through to the abomination of desolation, that when that event happens... There is going to be greater tribulation like the world has never seen. Now, understand this whole seven-year period has been called earlier the Great Tribulation in Revelation 7 and verse 14. Not Great Tribulation, but the Great Tribulation. 
He's referring to a specific time frame in human history, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. And if I use that term and you have no idea what that means, go back and listen to the last four sermons I did in Daniel chapter 9, where I go through four one-hour sermons giving you the schematic for the book of Revelation. And if you get that, it will open up the whole book of Revelation to you. It's otherwise you're trying to look at a detailed plan without seeing the big picture, all right? But I'm trying to give you the big picture, and I'm reviewing it a little bit each week as we work through. But there's an event that takes place that Daniel says happens right in the middle of the seven-year period. Jesus tells us the exact same thing in Matthew 24, verse 15. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand... When you see this event happen where the Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation goes into a rebuilt temple and as Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2, claims to be God Almighty, we'll see why people will believe that later on in the Revelation. But when he does that, I'm telling you the world is going to change dramatically. As bad as the seal judgments have been, Jesus said, when that event happens, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. We saw in the third chapter that this great tribulation encompasses the entire world. There has never been a time in human history where there's been turmoil that has affected the entire planet all at once, but that time is coming. And Jesus will then say a few verses later, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, that is believers, those days will be cut short. You have to twist the Word of God, spiritualize it, and do it a great injustice to say that all of this has been done. Why do I even harp on this? Because now the majority of evangelical expositors believe that the revelation was all fulfilled before 70 A.D. And good men, Alistair Begg, John Piper, good men whom I love and appreciate, but they're wrong. And they have done an injustice to this section of Scripture. This is not Daniel the historian. This is Daniel the prophet. He wrote a prophecy that Jesus connected in the Olivet Discourse with his second coming. Still out there in the future. Hasn't happened. But when that event happens, the abomination of desolation that we will study in detail when we come to Revelation 13. Look out. Watch out. Because all hell is going to break loose, and that's why there's no doubt 30 minutes of silence in heaven. You know, very often after a tragic event, we have a moment of silence. In heaven, they're going to have 30 minutes of silence before it even happens. That's how awesome it is. Look at verse 7. The zenith of God's judgment starts here. The first sounded... And there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So the first trumpet sounds, it announced the judgment on the land, and it's going to affect the entire planet. Now it appears during this time frame, again, we're in the second half of the tribulation when this happens, that um, when, when this happens, it's not by accident 
that these first four trumpets that we're going to see refer to literal trumpets. Now, one of the trumpets, there's a simile that's used, like something. But we've seen, apart from the similes, when there's a simile where it says, this is like something, then you discover what it's like, the meaning of the symbol, and then you literally believe it. But the reason I'm bringing this up, again, because there are people who say the revelation, with the exception of chapter 19, was all fulfilled before 70 AD, there's nothing ever in all of human history that has ever even happened like this. These are called later in the book plagues. And just as the plagues in Egypt were real plagues, there were real rivers of blood, real frogs, real gnats, real flies, real cattle that literally die, real boils, real hail, real locusts, real darkness, and real death on all the firstborn. This is very, very, very real. And just as Jesus believed in a literal worldwide flood, and just as Jesus believed in literal fire that came down on Sodom and Gomorrah, and Jonah who was swallowed by a literal real fish, we have to lay aside some preconceived system of theology that says the church has replaced Israel that was rooted in the anti-Semitism of Luther and Calvin. And we have to lay that aside and let the scriptures speak for themselves. Now, this first trumpet presents a grim picture of devastation. Again, it says a third of the earth was burned up. Fire, hail came down mixed with blood. Throne of the earth, a third of the earth burned up. A third of the trees burned. All the green grass gone. Now, these are very clearly God-ordained judgments. In fact, the syntax of verse 7 indicates that they are sourced in God Almighty. Now, don't forget, I've already noted for you this morning that the seven trumpets are divided into four and three. First is these four trumpets that are going to affect the earth. And then the last three trumpets, the three woe trumpets, directly affect man as individuals. And much like the ten plagues that God brought on Egypt, don't forget those ten plagues, real plagues, that God brought on Egypt. He didn't just pull them out of the air. Yeah, let's use frogs. Hey. Let's, use, let's use blood. Let, you know. No, they represented ten gods that the Egyptians falsely worshipped. And so he said, you like the frog god? Let me give you some frogs, and so on and so forth. The day is coming when God is going to judge this politically correct, evolutionistic-minded earth with judgment like they've never seen. And in the end, that when the day of the Lord comes like a thief, not at which, but in which, at the end of the day of the Lord, God will take this entire earth, Peter says, and he's going to burn it with fire. And Revelation 21.1 says he'll then make a new heaven and a new earth. But modern-day evolutionists, they're more concerned about global warming than they are with God's coming global meltdown and judgment. And in our day, more and more people attribute this world that we're walking on to evolution and not to the creative hand of God. The evolutionist says God did not create the universe. Man created God as a figment of his imagination to bring solace and comfort to his heart. Evolution is the master. But I want to tell you, as you watch the inhabitants of this storm, and as we read through the rest of Revelation, you're going to see there are no agnostics and no atheists. 
to listen again to today's study from Revelation 8 entitled, When the Trumpets Sound, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and asking for program REV22. Search the Scriptures is made possible through your prayers and financial support. If you'd like to help sustain this program, please call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow, the conclusion of When the Trumpets Sound. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.